I've got some, <clears throat> excuse me, I've got some pre, pre-sermon talking to do. Uh, as Fred mentioned in our training hour today, talking about uh, the importance of body life in worship and in fellowship. Um, and as I mentioned, or you might have seen in the bulletin aspects about care groups, maybe you saw the sign-up sheets that you signed up. You don't even know what you're signing up for. I don't know if that shows uh, eagerness or, I don't know. It's exciting, though. We, uh, here, here's how I'll set the stage. You know, just as we, we cycle through the different prayer focuses for our local body. And today, as you just heard, you'll see in your bulletin, the, we have a, here we have a local gospel ministry. We have a, some sort of a global effort. That's the, the, the rotation that we do on those things. So today, our, just us, what are we praying for about us? Sometimes it's elders, sometimes it's deacons. Uh, sometimes it's the future, sometimes it's training hour, nursery, different things. Today was just member needs. Um, and I, if we weren't, don't raise your hand, but if, uh, if we were to do a raise of hands, to how many of those needs did you already know? Right? I'd probably not, I, I would just assume that everyone did not already know all of those needs. That's not a criticism of you, right? That's not a condemnation, that's just a fact. Um, but I know that some people knew about all of them. And then there's the, even as we, as I sent Ken a text, hey, here, this is the ones that are at the, kind of the top of my mind, things that have been there. Um, no offense if, if I know of your need or if you have a need I don't know of that wasn't mentioned. That's always the problem, right? Because it's like, well, we could just go through the entire member list, take the whole gathering and do that. So there's always something missed, something new. That's just the reality of it. And we're, we're really not going to all know everything about everyone. Like there's just, there, there are too many of us for that to be a reality. And then to reach out to those needs. Like, it's great if you have the capacity to care for just every need of every member in this body. I don't, right? On a, just on a weekly basis. It's just like, how am I caring for Leanne? How am I caring for the kids? How am I fulfilling responsibilities? And then just certain things pop up. That's just, that's just the fact of life. And as, as Fred taught us this morning and reminded us, I think you said over 100, he was, I expect, oh, I think he's back there. Uh, over 100 times in the New Testament, it talks about these one another's, 60% of which are commands, that are supposed to be done. The importance of, of not just me and Jesus in Christianity, but us together. That's not just a responsibility, but that's actually how God's grace flows to his people is through his people, right? This back and forth. And so one of the ways that we've tried in the past, uh, it's kind of ongoing to um, make sure that everyone in our membership specifically is, is cared for is what we've called care groups, Right, with an elder and a deacon, uh, members kind of combined together into those things. And sometimes we've had yearly or twice a year times that together and his needs have popped up, whether that's a baby born or sickness or a death. Um, the care group is kind of mobilized for those type of things. And, and you guys have always been really just thankful for that type of care. Um, and we have great times of fellowship in the gathering, but just in, in my own heart and in conversations with people and just recognizing, it's just like, we, we can't just be like, oh no, what we're doing right now is just good. Like, this is it. We've, we've got it. We've reached it. This is, this is everything, right? Uh, Fred said, like, the gathering is supposed to be like a picture of heaven on earth. That's true. Are we really going to say like, yep, and we're there, right? This is as much like heaven as it could possibly be among God's people. Uh, I'm not putting my hand up to say that that's the case, uh, but I want us to be on a direction of that right? Like uh, our own neediness and uh, admitting that uh, and then listening to other people say like, and here's my needs. And we grow as we admit and share. The Lord uses that. 
And the Lord uses us as a listening ear to hear from other people, to pray for each other. And we don't know how to pray if we don't know how to pray, right? I mean, that's a little bit too simplistic, but... So just as elders, we've been talking, like, what, what do we do? And we talked about small groups for a long time, and, and different small groups kind of pop up, and there's great things that have happened in the course of those things. Uh, and there's no one way to do that. I know the Bible doesn't say, thou shalt have small groups that meet this amount of time, you know, these type of days. The uh, Bible doesn't say, thou shalt have care groups divided according to an elder and a deacon that fellowship yearly and coordinate funeral meals, right? So we're just trying to see, like, well, what does the Bible offer to us and uh, call us to? What, what privileged responsibility do we have to each other? Uh, and how can we as a church without right, making it so strict and forced and formed that it's just there's nothing, uh, there's no freedom in it? Um, I think you can err on just like, well, you've got plenty of time to kind of figure things out on your own. Uh, if we've erred, it's on the side of like, we don't ask that much, like one gathering a week. And then some churches are like, no, 17 gatherings a week, Right? like everything in your Christianity happens here in this building with these people. And we've been like, we don't want to be that. And so I, th- I think we've overcorrected. And so we, we want to take the kind of the care group structure that we have. You can call it small groups. We're going to just call it care groups. We're going to restructure them a little bit. Um, and this is, this is what we're asking. Um, one month, one more meeting a month uh, in a care group structure. And so on the second week of every month, we're going to have our care groups are all going to meet. And that's hard to find a time to do that. And so the way that we want to try to help with those type of things is that uh, that's difficult for us. Not every night of the week would work for our family. And I know that's not going to work every night of the week for everybody's family. And so sort of just recognizing that's the case, we have six different meetings on like four different nights that that can happen. Some of you, it's only Sunday evening that would work. I think we have two Sunday evening groups. Keith's group's going to meet on Sunday. Uh, and then Keith is, gonna, is the elder over. And Brett, I think your meeting is on Sunday. So we're going to have six groups. An elder is over each of those groups, but also a deacon's part of the, one of those groups, right? Just the leaders, the servants, the Lord's called to our church. So Keith's group will meet on a Sunday night here. Uh, Brett's group will meet on a Sunday night here. Keith's the elder over that. Brett's the deacon over that, right? So we continue to coordinate care in the structure the Lord's given to us. Um, our meeting, the, I'll, I'll lead a group on Tuesday nights that'll meet here, and Jason, wherever Jason is, uh, with Riker. Well, praise God. See, a good serving brother. So Jason Powell is the deacon that'll help kind of coordinate needs for those type of things. And Jason will lead a group on Wednesday nights. Uh, he already has a small group that meets on Wednesday nights, and so you guys can figure out how to fold into that. Um, Fred on Wednesday nights here. Ken on Thursday nights, and Chad will be a deacon to help with both of those things. So I don't know what day of the week works best for you, and we don't want to dictate that, but we have sign-up sheets for you to dictate that, right? Everything care group-wise so far for all of our membership has been us kind of shuffling, trying to figure those things out. For the next six months or so, at least, we're just kind of saying, well, y'all pick. (laughs) Kind of around which night of the week will work once a month for you to be able to come. Um... Every member of the church here at Risen King needs to be part of a care group. Uh, we recognize that if, those, if none of those times work, uh, just because there's not, you know, there's not a thou shalt come on Tuesday nights to this, it's not a, a fodder for church discipline. Like, how dare you not? 
We recognize seasons of life and those type of things. But even if there's not one that definitely works, like every member will be in one of those groups and we'll, we'll seek out what your needs are if you aren't able to make it. And we'll share the needs that were shared in the midst of that. It's a 90-minute time to come together. There'll be some discussion, maybe a sermon-type questions. What did you learn? What are we doing? But really the time will be dedicated on what's going on and how can we pray for each other. Like that's, that's the center of it. So that... We're not surprised when, when needs come up. And so that we grow as the Holy Spirit works in us and through us, that Christ cares for us by his people and Christ cares for others through us. And, oh yeah, that's the next piece. If you're not a member here, this is new, uh, you are welcome to sign up as well. So this is not exclusionary. I actually hope, thank you for saying that, Keith. I actually hope that this, we hope that this can be more than just what happens here, but can be both like an inroad uh, of fellowship to the body uh, and then an outflow of fellowship to those type of things, right? So not just an expression, but like as you come, you're welcome to sign up, you're welcome to attend. So it's not exclusionary. Um, so if you're, you've been attending for a long time, you're considering membership or whatever, we want you to be a part of those things too. There's only eight slots per, uh, per group. And we're gonna have it, oh, they already did. I love you guys. That table's blocking your exit, not in an unsafe way. There's exits there and there in case of an emergency or the exit, but you can go around. But it is, uh, your focus will be drawn to it as you leave. And the first, it'll be every second week of the month here, and then we'll just see what the Lord has for that. Um, much prayer has gone into this. Much prayer will continue to go into this. Ask us questions as you have, uh, as you have those things. I think any of the elders can answer those, but I'm hopeful um, and eager for the Lord to use this in my life as he has groups and small groups. And this isn't canceling anything else. Like, we have a wonderful uh, Tuesday morning men's prayer time that meets for an hour uh, every Tuesday, finishes at 7.30. Um, and that's just been an encouragement to me to come and to talk about God's word, to share what's going on, to be prayed for, to be followed up with. We want that to just continue to be expanded and to become part of the DNA of our body. Uh, that's however long that was. And I have a sermon. Lord, would you please bless our time in your word? Would you please use whatever efforts we try to have to be obedient, to grow um, all things? Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Uh, please bless our efforts to seek to walk in obedience and humility and love before you and your people. Amen. Genesis chapter 20. Have you ever done anything stupid? I've done, I've done stupid things. I thought about trying to think of an illustration, but I just humiliate myself enough over the course of the gathering. I'm just going to, I have, we'll just say that. Um, that's bad enough. Have you ever done uh, something stupid twice? Right? That's kind of like, oh, I did that, and, but I didn't learn, right? I just thought of an example. I'm not going to tell you what it was. And I didn't do it twice by God's grace. Can you think of something, though, clearly sinful that you have done? And then you've recognized it as wrong. And you've confessed it to the Lord. You've turned from it to Christ. You've purposed by God's grace to put that evil off forever. And then you've done that again. When we experience that type of stumbling and sinning repeatedly, 
should we view it as an exception? Like, is it normal or is it abnormal? Now, by normal, I am not saying acceptable. I'm not making excuses for sin. Matter of fact, that's kind of the whole point of what we're trying to drive with this text. Uh, It clearly isn't okay for us to sin, but there's a difference between, like, being okay with sin and just accepting the reality of our struggle against sin. Like, we should not be happy or okay with our sin, but should we really be surprised by it? Like, does the Bible tell us, be surprised by your sin? Is it that type of holiness in our experience that we should just be like, I can't, I cannot even fathom how that happened again. Like, is that really what scripture teaches? In its it is precepts, like in what Paul says, and also in its examples. I think it, it's important for us to have biblically informed expectations for ourselves and for one another, even as followers of Christ. And one expectation is like glorification. The removal of our sin nature does not happen here and now. Like every Christian is waiting for that. So we grow in holiness But it's really not unto perfection because that's a work that God will accomplish in the future. So right now, it's the struggle. And if it's a struggle, that means that there are times where we stumble and fall. Abraham is called the father of those who believe because he trusted in God's promises in some extraordinary ways. And he has been justified where we are in Genesis 20. He's already been justified before God by God on the basis of that faith. Abraham believed the Lord, and that was counted to him as righteousness. Yet, Abraham is still a sinner. The reformers wanted to emphasize this, and so they spoke of this in Latin, of course, as simul justus et peccator. At the same time, simul simultaneously justified and a sinner. And that's who you are. That's who I am. That's who Abraham was. He was righteous according to God's declaration, yet he was unrighteous in much of his behavior. In Genesis 20 today, then, we're going to see that God, our God, is the God of pagan kings and repeat offenders. God is the God of pagan kings and repeat offenders. Five points to get us through this text, Genesis 20. We'll read and talk about it back and forth. Uh, First, we see Abraham's iniquity. Genesis 20, starting in verse 1. From there, uh, the Sodom event having ended there, the destruction of Sodom. From there, Abraham, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. If this incident sounds familiar, it's because Abraham did the same thing a few chapters and a few decades ago. And we talked about that, and he did it in Egypt. And we said, man, Abraham was, why? He was fearful, that he was foolish, he was faithless. He was fearful for his life, he was foolish in his choices, uh, and he was faithless toward God, keeping the promises that he had just spoken. But God remained faithful to Abraham. Yet here we are, despite God's faithfulness, and even since then, the expansion of God's promises to him, we're left again with the sinful father of the faithful. At the same time, justified, yet still sinning. 
the one of whom God had said, I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. God said that of Abraham, yet here he is caught acting unrighteously and unjustly. Where do we see Abraham's iniquity? Well, first in his lying. Abraham just bold-faced lies. He takes a half-truth, we find out. Uh, Sarah was his half-sister. Weird. And he makes it the whole story. He takes a half-truth and he makes it the whole story. Sarah is my sister, implying that she was not his wife. Lying is not just speaking contrary to facts, right? He didn't say, she is not my wife. That would have been just that bold-faced, right? Contrary to fact, she is my sister. It's like, well, that's technically true, but his intent was to deceive. So it's not just if Abraham said, she's not my wife, that that was a lie, but by walking around being, she is my sister, that's a lie. Lying or deceiving also takes place when we tell our side of a story, emphasizing where we were innocent and how we were wronged and downplaying or ignoring where we were guilty and where we wronged the other party. Did you hit your sister? Well, she, God is a God of truth, and as his people, we are to speak the truth, admitting our guilt and answering hard questions even when it costs us something, trusting God to care for us despite our sin. Ephesians 4.25, very clear. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Abraham's iniquity is seen in his lying. It's also seen in his unfaithfulness to Sarah. So let's just give him the benefit of the doubt about Egypt, right? Let's say that was the first time that this had ever happened. Maybe it happened before. We don't know. Let's assume, let's say, he, oh, he assumed that he didn't know Pharaoh would bring Sarah into his harem as a, as a wife. Like, maybe he didn't know that that would happen back in Egypt decades ago. Even though he allowed the lie, even though it persisted, even though he benefited from it, maybe there was some ignorance there. But because when he made the lie in Egypt and Sarah was taken into Pharaoh's household as a wife, we can't pretend like he had no idea that could happen again. Right? There's no benefit of the doubt left for Abraham here. Abraham knew what could and probably would happen to his wife, Sarah, in a new place with an unfamiliar king if he lied about their marriage, yet he did it anyway. As her husband, Abraham should have protected his wife from harm and from the shame that this would brought, but he didn't. Like Keith said about Lot last week, he was, Lot was right to protect the angels. He didn't know they were angels. He was right to protect these men who came into his house, but he was entirely and inexcusably wrong to offer his daughters in their place. There's no excuse for that. He should have placed himself in harm's way to protect his household, all of those whom God had placed in his keeping. But sadly, Lot neglected his role as protector, and then he endangered his daughters in the process. It's really the same thing that Abraham does here in Gerar. He lies and allows the deception to continue while his wife, Sarah, lives in the household of another man, maybe even sharing his bed. And there's no reason to look at this text and be like, this just happened so fast as if there wasn't time to process it. This could have gone on for weeks to months, and Abraham doesn't seem to do anything. 
Why would Abraham do this? Well, he says to save his own skin. Like, well, bad excuse. But I understand I'm a failure as well. Sometimes women were claimed as wives for their beauty. That happened in Egypt. Nothing's mentioned about that here. Maybe the years had taken their toll on Sarah. I don't know. But other times, women were claimed as wives to solidify political relationships. What do we know about Abraham? He is wealthy, right? He is a rich man. He also has a reputation for military conquest. It's not like Abimelech, this other king, would not have known what happened when Abraham went up with 300 men and conquered those other kings and brought back the people of Sodom. This man has a reputation. Now he moves into this guy's territory, and the best thing for Abimelech is to form a peace treaty. And how do you do that? By marrying the guy's sister. All right, Abimelech makes sense, but Abraham? Is he just trying to save his own skin, or is he trying to benefit on the side from these type of things? But either way... Abraham remains silent as he puts his wife forward, like pushes her forward to be used and shamed by a foreign king. My brother husbands, why has God given you your wife? Is she merely your servant for your personal benefit? Is she an object to be used and discarded according to your whims? Is she a sensual tool to advance your ego or to advance your business? God has entrusted to you the stewardship of his daughter. And you will give and I will give an account for your stewardship of them. And we could talk about providing for a wife, protecting a wife, promoting the growth of a wife. I love that husbanding aspect that Keith talked about, early Genesis, right? The flourishing that's supposed to be happening. We talk about that, but I just want to remind us one familiar verse that we can compare Abraham and ourselves to, that James one mirror to put up. So brother, husbands, let's look in the mirror and not walk away with a defect What is the definition of a husband's God-given calling and privilege? Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. As Christ died because of his love for his bride, so we are to die for our wives and not just a heroic jumping in front of a mugger or a burglar. That's easy compared to dying to your self-interests and your selfish desires and your sinful responses. We are to live and lead for her good rather than for our own. And may God grant every one of us the repentance necessary where we have failed and may he grant us grace to be transformed into the image of Jesus, the perfect husband. Abraham, our fellow sinner, was not like Christ in his lying to Abimelech or in his unfaithfulness to Sarah. The text goes on to Abimelech's integrity. The end of verse 2, Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. 
And we don't know much about Abimelech, but when you think Philistine king, like, do you really have good images that pop into your mind? Like every new Bible character that comes up, you're like, oh, this is going to be a good guy. Probably not, right? Most of them aren't. Even if God's people are bad, how bad are not God's people? But from his conversation with God, we learn this man has integrity, at least in this instance. We don't know anything else. So we just look at this, and he had integrity. Adultery was recognized even back then as a great sin in the ancient world. In Egypt and in Canaan, all these other places, like adultery, you don't do that. Interestingly, they'd be like, so let's kill the husband so that I'm not committing adultery. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> like, you only have half of that picture there, but they didn't want to do that. They didn't want to commit this. Abimelech didn't want to commit adultery. He had no intention of doing that. So when he took Sarah as one of his wives, he did it with a clean conscience, with no knowledge of the sinfulness of his action. And when God confronts him with his sin, you're a dead man. You have sinned. This is, you have done wrong. Abimelech protests with his ignorance and his innocence. He asks God a question that should sound very familiar. Do you see it in verse 4? What, did, what does Abimelech ask? He said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? What does that sound like? You remember? It sounds a lot like Abraham's question about Sodom. Will you, will you allow the righteous to fare in the same way as the wicked? Lord, will you kill an innocent people? And then Abimelech's response continues, in the integrity of my heart, the innocence of my hands, I have done this. This has also been translated as, I've done this with a clear conscience, with clean hands. I had no idea. And God knows the heart, and God knows here. If this is true or not, and it is true, God confirms it. I think this really is a great example of that, God's law being written on the heart, right? Even though the, the revelation of God not come to Abimelech, as far as we know, and he certainly doesn't have the Ten Commandments. It's like 500 years before those are written down. Yet he still knows that this act is wrong, and he still doesn't want to do that. It speaks to what Paul writes in, in Romans about those things. The law of God was written on his heart. And his thoughts about this were excusing him. I am not doing wrong in this. Adultery is wrong. So here, adultery is wrong. It always has been. It always will be. There are no exceptions to it. Even without God's word to tell him adultery was wrong, Abimelech knew it. And he had no intention of being adulterous. We don't know anything about his morals in any other category, but on this one point, Abimelech's conscience was calibrated correctly according to God's will for marriage. That's great. Seeking to live with a clean conscience is a good thing, but it isn't sufficient. That's not all that we are striving for. If you think something is wrong, you should not do it. Because your intention is to sin, and God knows your intention, and God will judge us by our intentions. But just because you think something is right, that doesn't make it okay. Abimelech was genuinely deceived by Abraham's lie. That wasn't his fault, but he also truly took another man's wife into his house. And God is calling him to account for that. He was guilty even though he didn't know it. Because ignorance regarding sin is not an acceptable excuse before God. It's not acceptable for your sin. It's not acceptable for my sin. It's not acceptable for anyone's sin across time and space. There's no excuse for sinning against God. God's word teaches that God's 
perfect righteousness is the standard by which we must live, not just by a clean conscience. Perhaps that makes you uncomfortable as you think about sins that you may have ignorantly committed. Do you know what you don't know about the sins that you've committed? (laughs) If you say yes, then my question was confusing. It's like, do you see your own blind spots? Like by very definition, no, you don't and you can't because otherwise they wouldn't be blind spots. Maybe you didn't know something was a sin. Uh, Maybe you've just forgotten about a sin. You know, confession of our sin is supposed to be specific rather than vague. Uh, Husbands, wives especially, but not just that. All of us here can recognize that if I come home and Leanne is offended at me, so I walk into the kitchen, I put my stuff down, I kind of look, I, get, I feel it, right? And then I say, I'm sorry for whatever I did wrong. <laughs> Is that going to go well? <laughs> it doesn't go well. That's not an apology, right? That's just like, please stop being angry at me. Like, please stop being offended. Like, that doesn't work. If it doesn't work with our wives or with each other, how's it going to work with God? Now, I'm sorry for whatever it was. It doesn't work. That's not confession, right? Confession is specific. This is what I did. Like, I own this. Maybe it makes you a bit nervous. Maybe it didn't, and now it does. Have you specifically confessed every sin you've ever committed to God? You have not. I promise you, you have not. Even if you have every intention to, you have not. God knows omnisciently, all-knowing, right, and specifically every single one of your sinful actions and words and thoughts and motivations from the cradle to the grave And we may be ignorant, we may be forgetful, but God is neither. But here's the good news of the gospel. If you are in Christ, the the God who knows your sin is the same God who transferred your sin to Jesus and punished him for it. And God's forgiveness of his people's sins is as exhaustive as his knowledge of his people's sin. And praise be to God for that. That it isn't just a right? A confession of everything you know, and then you got to burn off everything else. It's kind of Roman Catholic purgatory. That's not what the Bible teaches. Christ fully paid for all of our sins with his precious blood on the cross. God's intervention is seen next. Verse 6, God replies to Abimelech's uh, plea for innocence. God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. God threatens Abimelech in a dream. I love the fact that God doesn't present his credentials first. He doesn't make a case for Gerar being part of God's jurisdiction. He just speaks with the authority of the ultimate king over the whole universe and decrees his judgment. Bimelech, you're a dead man. But before God threatened him, we, we already see God acting. Like that's like the beginning of the text is kind of like the end of the story. And God's saying, I actually have done a whole lot more. See, God threatens Abimelech, but before that, God had cursed Abimelech and his household with barrenness, we find out. It seems that some sort of a curse of sickness had fallen specifically on Abimelech. 
And this is in keeping with God's promise to Abraham to curse those who opposed him, just like he did to Pharaoh's household. No one is allowed to mess with Abraham or his family, according to God's covenant promises to him. So God threatens Abimelech, but before that, God had acted. God had brought a curse on Abimelech and his household and his family. But before that, God had kept Abimelech from sinning with Sarah. You see it in verse 6? It was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. People often argue about what God can or can't do. What he can do for or with or in humans. What, 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 what is he allowed to do? Many insist God must stay out of people's choices to sin or not to sin. His jurisdiction ends at that, that portion of our, our will, our decisions. Or, or it's like, well, he could, but he chooses to just stay out of it. Like that's where he does not go. He allows us sovereignty over our decisions and those type of things. He, he could never, he will never do those type of things. Yet throughout God's word, here included, we don't see God struggling to step in and act. He's not treading lightly as if he's trespassing a border that he's not allowed to go past. That's not what we see here from God at all. Why was it, why was it important to Abimelech to act with a clean conscience regarding adultery? Does everyone across the world, ancient or modern, does everyone care about the sin of adultery? No. So why does Abimelech care? It has, it's either just because of him or it's because of God's work in him. And if we know what sinful nature is, and it's not just him. So the very fact of integrity here was important to Abimelech because of God's work in him. Why didn't Abimelech inadvertently commit adultery with Sarah? Well, God prevented it. How? Well, we don't know. Why? Well, because God had the sovereign right to do so. God's intervention is something that we, we could see. He has no boundaries that he is not allowed to cross. That's a submission to his sovereign kingship. But we learned something else amazing about this, like these different steps. But I'm fascinated by this one piece, the center, I think, of this text as we think about God. And it's something that makes a lot of sense later on in Scripture as Revelation unfolds. God is jealous for Abraham and Sarah's marriage. God is jealous for it. Apparently more jealous than Abraham was. Abimelech's sin was not just against Abraham. We could miss that, couldn't we? Like their culture would have thought of it. Like this is, oh, Abimelech versus Abraham. Is that what God says? Do you see it? Right smack dab in the middle of verse 6. It was I who kept you from sinning against Abraham. Is that what it says? It's not. It was I who kept you from sinning against me. Do you know why God was jealous for purity and faithfulness in Abraham and Sarah's marriage? I think it's because every marriage is supposed to be a shadow pointing to the marriage between God and his people or between Christ and his church. Both Testaments uses that, right? Idolatry is an adulterous unfaithfulness. And worship is is a purity and oneness and love for our creator and our savior and our husband. So if, if it's, that's why God is so passionate about this, that means that God is jealous for our marriages too. That God's jealous for your marriage. God's jealous for my marriage. 
God is jealous for faithful marriages. If you're looking for blanks, that was it. Kids. God is jealous for faithful marriages and not just jealous and passionate that adultery be avoided. Like that's not all that faithfulness is. God is jealous and passionate that our marriages would reflect the marriage for his glory. So let me ask you, husbands and wives, are you as jealous for the good of your marriage as God is? This has stopped me in my tracks a couple times recently. (laughs) Maybe that's not evident to poor Leanne. Are you cry out to God desperate for covenant-keeping faithfulness with your wife or with your husband? Not try your best desperate. Cry out to God desperate for, the, for covenant-keeping faithfulness or have our hearts been taken captive by Sodom-like thinking that faithfulness doesn't matter, that our spouse doesn't matter, that only me and my happiness matters. You know, and friends and parents, that includes you. Not just are we jealous for our own marriages, but are we jealous for each other's marriages for the glory of God? Because every healthy, faithful, God-glorifying marriage is a gift of God's grace to all of us and to our community and to our society. Like, I need Keith and Laura Beth to have a God-glorifying marriage. And not just so that, like, he can serve as a pastor or this other thing. Like, I need it. It's for my good that they flourish. It's for my good that Jake and Heather would flourish or Glenn and Pam or Randy and Gail just moving around, right? And it's for the good of my kids and for your kids, single or married, like old or young, like every, every good and healthy, faithful marriage is for the benefit of society and for community here. You know what, for many of us, depending on how our week or month or whatever has gone with our spouse, Like some weeks it's like, yeah, marital faithfulness, this is great, and I'm really encouraged. And then some weeks it's like, ah, maybe we shouldn't talk about that. Maybe somebody else should talk about that. So it could be discouraging. It could be confirming. Yes, Lord, thank you. It could be discouraging. Ah, and convicting. And we need a balance of both of those things. But I know that for some, you've been heavy on my heart this week. It may feel more like a knife in the wound. You've walked through divorce, like a slap in the face about these things. And maybe, I don't, I don't know, maybe you made every effort at pursuing faithfulness, but your spouse persisted in sin. And maybe you didn't make every effort, or maybe you were unfaithful, because I don't know all of your stories, backgrounds, parents, yourself. I just, I don't know. I don't have all the answers. The question that runs in my mind, like, would God can intervene so clearly? Why doesn't he always intervene so clearly? I do know that as bad as this broken world is and as badly as it distorts the shadows of our marriages that I know that the real marriage remains unaffected. Like no failure of any husband can distort the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to his people. Like the marriage remains intact. It always has and it always will. Jesus has never and can never and will never be unfaithful to his bride. And I also know that in Christ, there is healing and there is forgiveness and he always remains faithful to us as part of his bride. 
And if you've been left unprotected by your spouse, maybe that's, maybe that's where this text is, is hard to hear because you see it pictured in your own life. If you've been left unprotected by your spouse, then left unprotected by any spouse, and we look to God. God is the protector of the weak. He is the husband to the widow. He is the father to the fatherless. So let's go back a couple chapters and remember how God went after Hagar in grace because he heard her and he saw her, right? And he chased her down to show his love to her, right? That's who God is. While they sojourned here, God acted for the good of Abraham and Sarah's marriage. And God acted for the clear fulfillment of his promise. And God acted for the protection of his people. And as always, God was faithful even when Abraham wasn't. And what I find remarkable is that God was at work in and for a pagan king. But the king didn't know it, and Abraham didn't know it. Yet God was acting, the God of pagan kings and repeat offenders, right? Like God was already doing something before anybody knew that God was acting. Like his intervention was already seen. And this happens in other places in scripture as well. Not always as beneficial to the person here, right? Like God acted in hardening Pharaoh's heart. That text bounces like God hardened, Pharaoh hardened. God hardened, Pharaoh hardened. But before Moses ever spoke to Pharaoh, God said, this is what I'm going to do. And he hardened that heart against his words so God could display his power in redeeming his people. And then I think of the great Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. Right? He's strutting around like a peacock metaphorically. And God says, oh, if you want to act like an animal... Let's try a different one. He, he strikes him, turns him into like a cow-type eagle beast eating grass for seven years. And when he finally lifts up his head, he's like, you are God. You are the king, not me, right? God acted in that toward a pagan king for that king's good and for the glory of God's name. And I think of the Persian king, Ahasuerus, who just happened to pick Esther as his wife and just happened to read up, uh, wake up one night and decide to read and just happened that they picked the scroll about Mordecai and he just happened to save God's people from total annihilation. It just happened. I think of Pilate's wife troubled in a dream about Jesus, yet her warnings were ignored, right? God acting in people's hearts and minds. See, because God intervenes whenever and wherever and however he wants. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever pleases him. But he often doesn't intervene when and where and how we want, which is a cause for faith and an expression of longing and a trust in his plan. Next in the text, we see Abimelech's interrogation. I thought it was ironic, Fred, that you mentioned how much pastors like alliteration because I knew what this was today. Verse 8, so Abimelech rose early in the morning, called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Uh, besides, she is indeed my sister, uh, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. 
And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do me. That word is like faithfulness. This is terrible. This is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is as a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. So Abimelech calls a council meeting. He comes, brings his people in, and he tells them what's been going on, and they're all afraid. And why? Because they're on the wrong side of God, the God who just crushed Sodom and who's been with Abraham and all these other places, right? You don't want to run afoul of this, this God. Even if they don't know exactly who this God is, they don't want to mess with them, and they have, even if it's inadvertently. So they're terrified, and rightly so. Then Abimelech confronts Abraham with these questions. Like, I think it's kind of like this. Well, what did we ever do to you? <laughs> like, where did this come from? You've got to be kidding me. Abraham gives his rationalization. He gives his excuses, and they seem pretty weak. Well, I, I assumed that you guys were all wicked sinners. <laughs> I just figured you were terrible. Oh, thanks. And then it's like, well, and technically she is my sister. Oh, and? <laughs> well, it's just kind of been our plan for a long time. Oh, that's nice. And in my mind, there's just this awkward silence. I just, I love this, right? Like every other time Abraham's been called before, maybe he's like, he gets more cattle or he gets more sheep. He gets more servants. Like he benefits every time he gets to see his buddy, the king, right? That's what happened with Pharaoh. He just kept being like, oh, your sister's great. Here's more money, right? That's what happened. So was Abraham just kind of like, do, do, do. Like, I wonder what I'm going to get today. It's kind of like, everybody's there. Boy, why is everybody sad? Be like, why did you let me marry your wife? Like, oh. Then he gives his pathetic excuses, right? Like, I, I, I'm good at pathetic excuses also. And then after he says these things, I think there's just sort of this awkward silence. Well, you're terrible, I figured. Uh, she is my sister, right? And it's just been kind of the thing that we do. It's sort of the shtick that we have. And everybody's like, really? <laughs> excuses always sound better in our heads than they do out loud, Right? or recorded in sacred scripture. When I think about what Abraham did here in Egypt, uh, he assumed someone else's unrighteousness. He assumed a lack of God's work in them, and then he justified his own righteousness based on that assumption. It's kind of like when I get preemptively mad at Leanne because she's probably upset at me. It's like coming in defensive and angry because, like, well, maybe... And that, that ridiculous behavior is from a, a believing husband to a believing wife. Do we act toward unbelievers based on the assumption of their wickedness and the lack of God's work in them? We completely overlooking the possibility that God is actively working in the unbelievers around us, in them and for them, or is it just us? Do we act toward other believers based on the assumption that God is only at work in us? I think we're really short-sighted. Like when you've wrestled with a truth, maybe for a long time, and you see it in scripture, just like your heart's just torn about it. And then finally you're like, okay. Like I lay down my arguments and I submit to you. 
And then the next conversation you have with somebody else, be like, did you know that this, the Bible says this about God? And they're like, wow, I don't know about that. You're like, oh, you must hate God. Like, you're ignorant and blasphemous and unfaithful. Because I've known this for 30 seconds. Right? It's just like, and if we struggle with impatience and then God produces patience in us and then all of a sudden, right, it's just like somebody else is impatient toward you and you'd be like, I can't believe that they're still struggling with impatience. That's just ridiculous. Oh, Lord, have mercy on them. I, th- I thank you that I am not impatient-like. Do we justify then? See, like, we, we have that type of amnesia about our own sinfulness and about our own ignorance and those type of things. When we forget those type of things, the next step I think, is then starting to justify anger and deceit uh, and impatience and unkindness and so on because of their assumed sinfulness. Is it okay for us to sin against sinners? Is it okay for you to steal from a thief, to hate a murderer, to deceive a liar, or to lust after a prostitute? May God help us to abandon our rationalizations and our excuses, and just look to Christ. Because Jesus knew the heart of man. And Jesus knew the unbelieving heart of Judas. He knew it with detail. It wasn't a guess, it was knowledge. He knew the heart of Judas. He knew his betrayal. He knew his theft, but he loved and served him even washing his feet at that last supper. When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly, and that's in response to actual sin against him. And sometimes we justify sin not because of actual sin, but because of potential sin or assumed sin. Christ acted righteously before God despite the known sin of those around him. Abraham acted unrighteously before God because of the potential or assumed sin of those around him. Do we act in righteousness because of other people or because of God? Who are you living your life before? And Abraham's, uh, excuse me, Abimelech's integrity continues to be displayed here despite Abraham. He pays Abraham very generously to make up for the wrong he committed. He returns Sarah to him. And then he, he uh, like publicly apologizes to Sarah, pronounces her innocence in this matter publicly before everyone with a very, very generous gift. Like, it's not what you would pay. A thousand pieces of silver is just like not paid anywhere. I mean, land and slaves and uh, whatever else purchased for far, far less than this. And he, he does this to, to not cover the matter, but to just be like, not to like hide it. It's not hush money, but it's just kind of like, I'm going to be, I'm going to like go over the top so that everyone knows at great cost to me, this woman is not guilty. That's important as we get into chapter 21, because Abimelech cannot be Isaac's dad. Abraham needs to be Isaac's dad. And so Abimelech makes this very open and public. It's like, that's not what happened. And she's innocent in this matter. And I really like Abimelech because he seems to throw one little jab in there. Behold, I have given your brother <laughs> a thousand pieces of silver. Like, kind of stings on the backside, doesn't it? I like that guy. 
And we end with Abraham's intercession. Verses 17 and 18. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. We see that, I already mentioned a little bit, with God's intervention and and the time that's elapsed here, that that was noticeable. It is amazing to me that, as one author put it, innocent Abimelech must get the guilty Abraham to pray for him. That's kind of the last piece of this. And Abraham does pray for him in verse 17. According to God's instruction that God said in verse 7, and then God answers Abraham's prayer and heals Abimelech and his family. This is, let's think about this. Abimelech, the deceived king with a clean conscience, has to ask deceiving, unfaithful Abraham to pray for him. Why? Not because Abraham was righteous and not because he was worthy but because God was the God of Abraham. Like, who are we to speak God's truth to one another, to anyone, right? Like, who are we to confront in sin? Like, who am I to stand up here and seek to confront other husbands about, like, not just passionately and and jealously pursuing faithfulness when it's like with all of my failures as a husband? Like, who am I to do that? Who are we to intercede for others? Am I going to pray for someone's impatience when I'm impatient? I'm going to pray for their deception, like in my deception? Who are we to serve as God's ambassadors to his enemies when we were God's enemies? But that's kind of the very point. Have you ever asked yourself questions like this and had an expectation of like, once I get my life together, then I can serve? Because I'm not worthy of doing that, but one day I will be worthy, and when I'm worthy, then I'll serve And those who are serving, they're the ones who are worthy. Maybe it's questions like this that keep you or keep me from praying or confronting or sharing the gospel. Because here's the thing, if you're waiting to be worthy to come to Christ, then you will never come because you'll never be worthy. And if you are waiting to be worthy of the gospel before you serve Christ, then you will never serve. You will never be worthy. that's That's a direction, right? Striving to walk worthy of the gospel, but it's not a destination, of being worthy of the gospel. But if you know that you are a sinner who needs grace, then come to Christ. And if you know that you are a sinner who has received grace, then you can freely extend that grace, which is his grace, to your fellow sinners. There's a world of difference in those type of things. And then God will hear and God will answer and and God will be glorified and not you and not me. If it's your wisdom and your message, then keep your mouth shut. But if it's God's message and if it's God's wisdom, then how can we not speak it? Not because it's like, oh, I've got to look at me and pat myself on the back, but it's just kind of like, but we are God's people. Called to intercede because others have interceded for us. And called to confront because God has confronted us. And called to exalt Christ. Christ has exalted himself to us. Do you see the difference in those type of things? And it, when you feel that, that humbly, that shame's like, oh, I can't say anything. It's just like, well, not if you, if you think it's because you're better. Like, well, what if they think that I'm better? Well, you can't, you can't change their thinking. So you can seek to just bring that in. It's like, look, sinner, sinner, savior. But you can't wait to serve and intercede and share 
and speak truth until like you're worthy of it. We are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us to an answer, be reconciled to God just as I've been reconciled to God. And if we do that in, this would have been, I think, just humiliating to Abraham. Like, this is awkward. And maybe that's good for us to be humbled in our intercession and our service to others. To walk out of a, right, with a sting of God's discipline in our own lives to just be like, and he's merciful to you. Right, he didn't leave me alone in my sin. He doesn't want to leave you alone in your sin. He is better and he is worthy. And then God hears. God hears Abraham's prayer. Abraham didn't, we don't know that Abraham confessed. He doesn't, this is a terrible confession, right? It's kind of like, well, I thought this about you. And well, this is kind of the true. And well, it's kind of the thing that we do. And be like, no, 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 right? And without any, and I'm not like promoting, don't confess your sin and just pray for people, right? But it's just like, but God did hear and God did answer for the good of this other kingdom bringing blessing to the nations despite Abraham. Father, thank you for your grace to us. Thank you that you are the God of of Gentiles or pagans like us. You're God of repeat offenders like us. Please do forgive us and deliver us from our sin that Christ may be glorified in and through us. Amen.